Hey folks, as you probably expected, Drew Gill is back on the pod. Uh, Gill is coming off a really good run. He did awesome in the BPT opener at Toledo. Then he won at Sam Rayburn. And uh, then he made top 25 with no practice at Gunnersville. Uh, so anyway, I love talking with Drew. He always goes deep. Uh, he is a big thinker. Um, and we got into some real nitty-gritty live scope stuff. Uh, we talked about who the next Drew Gills are. Because um, it seems like there's more of them every day. And uh, if you hate scope, this is not the show for you. But it's uh, pretty informative, pretty fun. Um, and we talked current events and all sorts of good stuff. So anyway, here is the one and only Drew Gill. Alrighty, and we are joined now by... Drew Gill, uh, who is coming off a great finish in the uh, Bass Pro Tour opener at Toledo Bend, a great finish in the Toyota Series event at Lake Gunnersville, and also a win in the Tackle Warehouse Invitational at uh, Sam Rayburn. Uh, Drew, you're king of the world. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, Jody. <clears throat> it's been a it's pretty been a pretty exceptional last few weeks, and uh, you know, sitting here. It's Santee, just kind of getting to, I guess, reminisce on the last few weeks of good fishing. It's something that is really a, it's a disconnect, man. Cause like, you know, I want to look back at it and, and enjoy how good the last few tournaments have gone. Like when you're in the middle of an event, that's not going your way at the moment, you know, it's, it's a hard thing. And, uh, and, you know, looking at it that way, I mean, you know, so many things that I need to be thankful for over the last few weeks, but like. In, in tournament fishing, man, it's week by week, you know, whatever, whatever tournament just happened, that's great. That's awesome. And then you roll into the next one. You're like, it's back to tied for last. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's a hard transition, but it's definitely, uh, definitely the world I'm living in right now. All right. Well, I was planning on like letting you bask a little bit and talking about your flowering career and things like that, but you brought it up. So I guess we'll talk about Santee and then we'll spend the rest of the, we'll get that out of the way. We'll spend the rest of the show mm-hmm. talking about how you're a super baller. Um, but man, you texted me, I think you're like, yeah, it's going down. Santee's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, day one in your group and granted your group pretty stacked. Uh, Jacob Wheeler caught 53 pounds. Uh, he seems to be good at fishing. Um, Sometimes. Dean Rojas <laughs> caught 48 pounds. I assume on a frog, you never know. Um, and then you caught, I believe the five smallest fish in the lake, uh, Mm -hmm. for 12 pounds and you're in 23rd, which really, you know, you're a couple pounds away from getting a check, which getting checks is good. And you're not really out of it at all for making the cut considering how volatile that fishery can be. But yeah, what's, uh, what's the situation, man? Oh man, I've got myself. I wouldn't say backed into a corner, but it's, it's in my mind, it's, you know, we were talking about last night, like, I'm not survived, but this is like, you know, when the Titanic sank, clamoring onto an iceberg, at least you're not in the water anymore, but you're still soaking wet, chilling on an iceberg. So, like, this is a poor scenario to be in, but at least you've not already drowned, put yourself so far behind the ball, you can't come back. So, you know, I'm in 23rd, I'm just outside the, the check cut and, and, you know, 13 spots behind making the top 10, but, uh, I mean, really... If I can have a go, or if I can go have an above average day tomorrow, you know, catch high 30s, I feel like I give myself a chance to make the top 10 cut. And, uh, you know, I found something pretty unique at the beginning of practice um, when it was warm and uh, it was stable. And then, you know, as happens on dirty, shallow fisheries, whenever you have a cold front and multiple 28, 32 degree nights, um, anything that you're catching up shallow is, is probably going to dissipate. Uh, and when I say up shallow, I mean like, shallow shallow like around the bank around lots of cover things like that and uh that's what happened to me um you know most of my fish just straight up vanished uh went out yesterday planning to fight it out and i did and i uh fought it out to the tune of 12 pounds so it wasn't was not a great day but uh if we can get a little bit of an improvement with the weather you know it's gonna be 50 something at takeoff tomorrow and uh it's it's almost 70 today almost 70 again tomorrow and uh we're gonna have very similar conditions to what i had at the beginning of practice 
the water temp changed six or seven degrees just yesterday afternoon. It was really warm and uh, hoping that if we can get that water temp back in, you know, where it should be and, and with uh, a southwest wind, you know, in the area that I'm fishing, that heavy, heavy wind we're going to have tomorrow, 30 mile hour gust, it should should raise the water level where I'm fishing a little bit. This place has a little bit of a wind tide effect and uh, I'm hoping, you know, with some water pushing in and uh, should be, you know, in incredibly warming water, it, it should uh, should be decent, should at least be better than it was. So uh, I'm hoping to go out there and, and, you know, if I can get five bites again tomorrow, but then be the, the average quality that I was expecting, which is that high three average quality. If I can get five bites in that quality range tomorrow and, and you know, that'll be, 19 pounds or something if i can just finish in the you know finish in the 30s and, and get a check and get out of here at this point i will be more than happy um you know obviously you don't want to not shoot for the top 10 but you got to look at the schedule on a landscape and say these are the tournaments that i know i'm going to do well at these are the ones that could swing either way and these are the ones i need to survive and this is this is one of two that i looked at and i was like i need to survive this tournament and so if i can get out of here with a check i will be ecstatic okay as far as you know you talk about surviving a little bit like does that mean surviving still relying on live scope as you are wont to do or does that mean surviving and like fishing without it uh surviving for me is i mean it's always based around forward facing sonar you know we look at it as an offshore fishing tool and people look at it and they're like oh you're trying to force the way you fish on a place that doesn't fish that way Everywhere fishes for live scope. Everywhere. It's just an information gathering tool that allows you to see what's going on underwater. So it's it's always, in my opinion, if you take X area and, and you put two different anglers in it, one that's fishing blind and one that's fishing with forward-facing sonar, and you give them four days to fish this area, regardless of whether it's two feet deep, 20 feet deep, or 100 feet deep, over four days, the guy that's using forward-facing sonar is going to catch more weight. Because it means that you maximize your opportunities and it means you know when you have an opportunity every time. And it's just the, the best way to make sure, to ensure that, that you make the most of what you have. And, you know, I didn't have much to go off of yesterday, but I, I did know through watching every cast that I made, and it wasn't forward facing sonar, wasn't determining what cast I made, it was just deciding how I fished it. And uh, I had six opportunities at a bass yesterday, it had six bites. I landed five of them. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a good way to make sure that whatever I have, I can maximize it. And uh, so forward-facing sonar is always a staple of what I'm doing. Okay. I, I like it. Um, when you first started using forward-facing sonar, uh, did you <clears throat> experiment like all over the board with it? And you were like, I'm going to set it out at 100. I'm going to set it at 120. I'm going to set it at 40 like crappie fishermen do. Mm -hmm. Or did you happen to land really close to your ideal right out of the gate? So I started out using it, um, fishing one little lake around the house and I, I was dialing it, messing with it and just switching the forward and the down and, and just kind of dialing it in, um, to where I could get my framing right. You know, I, I got it to where everything looked right. Cause I had heard somebody mention that like, you got to get it where a fish looks like a fish because I'd seen tons of videos where a fish actually swam and looked like a fish. And then in other videos, it just looks like a blob. And the only difference between those two ideas is, is just how you have the screen frame. And I landed on 60-20 was the first one that I used kind of like universally. And 60-20 is pretty close to right. Uh, it's really for 60 feet out, you probably need to be at around 17, 18 most of the time to get it perfect. But 60-20 is pretty close. And that's what I started at. And, and it really, I left it at that for a long, long time. And then, uh, and then eventually I started thinking about it. I was like, well... I mean, I can put it out further, but if I'm going to do that, I got to put it further down and I, I would just play around with it. And, uh, eventually got to the point where I was pretty good at just feeling out where got everything needed to be to keep my screen proportionate, regardless of how far out or down I was, it keeps everything looking the way it should look. And, uh, that was something that I, I played around with really once I started expanding to fishing on, uh, on, well, the first place that I did this was, uh, I believe it was on, um, well, where was it? It was, it was on Hartwell. Hartwell okay. was the first place that I, that I played around with this, uh, fishing some of the shoals and points. Cause I wanted to be able to see them a little bit further away because I could tell that like we had some really sunny slick conditions the week I was there and 
the spotted bass would see your boat or hear your boat from a long distance and come look at you. And uh, I just was like, you know, how am I going to hit these targets or hit these fish further out? And so I just started playing with it. And that week I got it to where I was at like, I think I was 80 something and like deep 20s on my on my uh, down. And, and that was the first time I played with it. And then from there, I just kind of, you know, adjusted it up or down a ton just about everywhere I go. And But I mean, the thing is like, Everybody hears that, and in their mind, I think a lot of times jumps to every fish or every situ- situation. I'm re- readjusting it just to to fine tune it. Once I get on a deal that I'm doing, really, I'm just trying to find the best settings in general for what I'm trying to do. Yes, throughout the day, I'll probably adjust it once or twice a day. If I'm on the same pattern all day, I'll, I'll probably adjust it once or twice because different areas set up differently. But uh, most of the time, you just kind of find a standard happy medium for what you're doing. And uh, just leave it there because once you find a good happy medium for what you're doing with good proportions, you're what you're doing is you're keeping the fish the same size on the screen always, which is where your ability to judge species and size of fish comes in. And if you're constantly changing it, your your eyes never adjust to where you can really like at a moment's notice at a, at a sharp glance know exactly how big a fish is. Does this mean that with a bigger screen you can set it? to see more like is this why you're seeing guys run a 22 inch or whatever because you can be like i can see the fish well at 120 or 100 compared to see a blob at 100 100 that's why they're running bigger screens is because they know the limitations of of distance and down and and how that relates to just your screen size uh you are limited in what you like with a nine with a nine inch unit, which is what I started with, I would never go past 70 consistently. Um, you know, if, if, if I did a couple times, it was just purely fish for fish higher in the water column. But when I have a nine, I would never go past 70 because you lose too much of your detail on that small of a screen when you try and, and pull it out super far. And now I'm running a 12 and like with a 12, I don't go past a hundred. Never. Um, because you just lose too much detail and you lose the ability to read the size of the fish very well. And, uh, and then you go up to 16 inch screen or a 22 inch screen. And then you're starting to talk about units where you can effectively put it out far enough that, that your effective outrange is far further than you can even cast or even truly see well. Um, but that is hundred percent why, why guys are using bigger screens. It's not just to where they can see even more detail or see their lead or not. It's to where they can see the appropriate amount of detail at increased distances or increased depth. Okay. Interesting. I, I love talking about this with you. Um, you may not want to remember Clark's Hill last year, but there was a lot of pollen in the water then. And it yeah, was a was. thing that really... It kind of stymied a few guys. Did you figure out how to cut through that at all? Did you make any adjustments from a settings perspective or what you were trying to do with with scope perspective uh, in that tournament? So in that tournament, you know, I didn't, I made a very poor decision to, uh, to try and fish blind and don't do that. Blind is a, is a talent that really anymore with the amount of fishing pressure we have in the fisheries that we're on is a talent that very few possess consistently. So not meaning that there aren't lots of people that can do well around the bank once, but there's a very small handful of guys that consistently do well around the bank all year long. And so if you're, if you're taking the ability to know this information out of your own hands, you're making it harder on yourself to do your job. And so, but I went to the bank, I, I fished around the bank a lot, but when I did run it around the bank, um, you know, a lot, the, the pollen was a big factor, but ultimately, ultimately, although it is annoying and it, it creates a lot of interference, a bass still throws a lot hotter return than in pollen. And so regardless of how annoying it is or regardless of how much interference there is, a bass still looks like a bass. It may aggravate you to look through all the interference and all the pollen and the noise because it hurts your eyes over time, but a bass still looks like a bass. It's still going to throw a brighter return than everything else in the water. Um, and a lot of guys were turning on noise reject settings, turning their noise reject and just pumping it through the roof. But the problem with noise reject is, is you're telling the unit, Hey, you know, all of this information that you're collecting from a sound wave bouncing off something and coming back, I don't want that information. And so you're just telling the computer non-discriminatorily because the computer's not discriminating between fish and not fish 
what it's discriminating between is excess sound or what it expects to be the appropriate amount of feedback. And so the computer is expecting an appropriate amount of feedback, but when you have a foreign substance like pollen in the water, it's getting far more feedback than normal. And uh, when you start dialing up your noise reject, you're just telling the computer, hey, I don't want to see things. I do not want to, everything that you're seeing, hearing, collecting, I only want part of that. And so it's just going to start wiping the screen of, of return. And that's something that really, it makes your life a lot more difficult to see things. And when you, anybody that's ever turned their noise reject really high, when you get to high on noise reject, you get an insane amount of lag. You, so basically what you're doing is you're overloading the computer with these screening protocols. And now it's fighting both to collect all the information and to screen it all. And it, in the snap of a finger and trying to show you an image in real real time. And it can't do that effectively. Like you look at it, you turn noise reject way up. We've all seen videos that people have taken when, when their noise reject is on and really high, you can tell because it takes live scope and makes it look more like uh, mega live. You look at mega live. It's a, it's a much more smeared slow image than, than live scope or than even than active target. Because it, it just pulls the screen, like it pulls it across the screen. Everything you do is a little bit more, I guess what I'll use, I'll use the word blended. Like live scope is like if you took all the ingredients of what you're looking at and poured it in a bowl and just left it. That's just what you got. That's your ingredients. Versus, <clears throat> you know, you look at an image like Megalive. Megalive tries to blend it all together. And through the process of your computer trying to make a very pretty image, you essentially make the the processing speed way slower and as a result you get an insane amount of lag your unit does not work at a very fast rate of speed and when your noise reject is really high you're you you just can't effectively do what you need to do because you are operating at you know let's say a quarter second behind at all times and and that's just not not an effective way of using the technology because then you can't you cannot anticipate a fish's movements if you can't do what you need to do right when you need to do it. And uh, if you, if you're not able to do that, you can't effectively coax everything into biting that you need to catch because you've used it tons. I've used it. If you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, you ruin your opportunity. No matter how long you've worked them up, you ruin your opportunity. And uh, if I don't have the, the real time factor where it's truly as real time as I can get, I don't want it. Um, <clears throat> when you, kind of when you look at anything, right, you, some people process certain things faster than other people. Um, mm-hmm. If I look at a board full of, full of numbers, I'm going to be there an hour and then give up. Uh, mm-hmm. If I look at a page of words, I'll just read it and probably read it faster than most people. Um, fishing with you for day five, I was like, I don't think that I've ever been more impressed fishing with somebody than I was fishing with you because I felt like you were just operating at like really truly like another level as far as how quickly you could see, identify, uh, make a determination of what the fish is or what you thought the fish was and like put a bait to it. Is that, uh, do you feel like you've always had that aptitude or was that something you were able to develop? I mean, I feel like, some people have an easier bit towards it than others. Uh, just, just in the way that the link between your eyes and your brain works, you know, you look at reaction time tests with different individuals and you're going to get different results from person to person. And, and a big part of that is like, if my reaction time in recognizing a fish and being able to analyze where he's going and make a cast is 50% faster than someone else's, let's say it's 50% faster, which in that short of a time, 50%, is really it's it's a it's a very fast difference, but it's still that fifty percent difference. So let's say I, I in two and a half seconds I can look, tell where he's going, and tell what species of fish I'm looking at, and somebody else takes him five seconds. Well, guess what? Every single interaction I have with a fish all day long, I'm doing it at half the time, which means in, you know in in just the simplest terms of math, I'm getting double the interactions in a day's time, which means over the course of three days of practice. Somebody else has practiced their three days of practice. I have essentially practiced six days of their three days, you know, of their day of practice. I've practiced six of them because I've done the same amount of practicing in, in two times the speed. And 
and the thing is, it's not just about speed. Like we look at, you're like, oh, let's just, why don't we just turn our trolling motor up to 10 and put it 120 feet out and just be as, as rapid as possible. It's about effective speed. It's about how fast you can be effective at, at recognizing what you're looking at, where it's going and being able to hit it. And um, that's, that's something, where, you know, naturally some of us have a higher, you know, a, a more effective eye brain connection where we can recognize those things through our reaction time much faster. But ultimately it's something you can cultivate too. You know, I wasn't as fast now as, or I wasn't as fast when I started as I am now, you know, it took time. It took repetition of recognizing how different fish swim in different environments, how they relate to things and uh, seeing fish at different distances. And, and really it was something that, yes, some people have a bent toward understanding at a, at a quicker rate, but ultimately, uh, ultimately it's something you have to cultivate. Yeah. Makes sense. Have you learned anything um, like just this year? You know, have you oh, been man. able, like what, what kind of things stick out to you as being stuff that you've been able to add to the game, so to speak? Dude, I mean, the, the amount we learn from watching fish on forward facing sonar is incredible. Um, one of the more recent things I've learned, uh, not necessarily like this calendar year, but within the last eight, nine, 10 months is like breaking the line of sight of a fish. Uh, basically, you know, fish are sight feeders, bass are sight feeders. If you want to argue it, great, good job, go do it. You're going to be wrong. Um, <laughs> they're sight feeders. Objectively, you watch a bass interact with anything in the water. You watch them interact with your bait. They're using sight as their primary means of, of, of essentially it of interaction for everything in the water. And so you watch, watch how they treat your bait in relation to the boat. And you notice when fish get within a center where they know the boat is there. And so, especially in really clean water, they can see you a long ways away. And even if you don't necessarily recognize that at first, when you start trying to effectively break their line of sight and pull their attention away from the boat as much as possible, or keep their line of sight either below the boat or to the side, you catch so many more of those fish. That was something I learned at Champlain last year in the Toyota was the first day it was cloudy and uh, I caught them really well, really early in the morning, but then struggled to catch them later in the day doing the same techniques. And I, I was catching them within five feet of the surface. And so these fish had a very direct flat line of sight to the boat. And so, and so what I was doing was, was, you know, essentially leading them directly to the trolling motor on the same plane. They're going to be staring at, the silhouette of the boat in, in front of the bait at all times. And, you know, the, the conventional logic is in clean water, we're going to use light natural baits and, and try and be as sneaky as possible. But you can only be so sneaky when, when there's a gigantic alien uh, form or alien, you know, object in their environment that they're looking at. I mean, they're, An you know, unidentified floating object. Correct. Who, <laughs> uh, who cares how light your bait is who cares what color your bait is if it's always within 40 feet of a massive giant shadow of an object like it's like in nemo when when he goes out toward the boat and he goes to touch the boat and then bam it's you know it's this massive shadow that you can see a long ways away it's the same you know even though it's a cartoon movie it's the same principle where you can they can see your shadow especially in clean water at a distance and like you know it, it Toledo Bend, I applied the same principles like Champlain. I started trying to either catch the smallmouth where they were quartering, uh, not directly toward the boat, but quartering away from me, meaning like quartering in a direction that was not facing the boat and cut them off in such an angle that I could lead them either away from the boat initially, or at least lead them at an angle that wasn't coming directly at the boat for the first, you know, however many feet of that, that approach. Cause that's when you gain the most engagement is in that first 15, 20 feet of that fish seeing your bait. And, and really, even if they don't eat it for 40, 50 feet, that first 15, 20 feet of the approach is what sets the tone for whether they're going to commit. And when you, they get to gaining speed, even if you turn them and they start coming toward the boat, if that first 15 or 20 feet, you get them gaining a lot of steam and committing, they're going to commit. They'll eat it off the gunnel if you get them fired up, but you can't get them fired up when they're staring at the boat the entire time. And so I switched a little bit heavier head to where I could keep their line of sight lower because I basically would get down to them faster than the, than the lighter one would. And they'd come up and meet the lighter one a little bit more. And so that instead of meeting it four or five feet below the surface, the heavier one, they were meeting 12 feet deep, you know, 11, 12 feet deep. And then when they're following that, that flat plane, following it back to the boat like this, 
basically it's leaving their line of sight below the boat. Whereas with it up four or five feet deep, they're looking like th at this angle all the way back. They're looking at the boat and my, my back ratio went through the roof. Um, did the same thing at Toledo with a lot of largemouth there. Cause like when, when you're fishing around timber and <clears throat> you're fishing around catfish and you're fishing around gar and other trash fish and, and a lots of tall, big cover like timber, they'd sneak up on you at Toledo. Like there'd be times where you wouldn't see them until they were within 40 feet of the boat. And if you're going to want to try and work those fish up to eating in that short of a space, what you have to do is you're going to have to abuse the angles to either gain more space just by trying to draw them away from the boat and then getting them to turn. Or you're trying to basically pitch out there and just get it where they commit before they even turn and look at the boat. And so like at Toledo, if I saw a fish coming at me, I would either try and pull his attention left or right of the boat by, by throwing my bait and kind of having an obvious splash in a certain direction to pull his attention away. Or I would try and even get around the fish and let him start swimming away and, and throw over him and lead it to him while he's swimming away from the boat. Because generally with those fish, if you can catch them suspended swimming away from the boat and you lead them before they, you know, before they see your bait acting in an unnatural manner, if you get that posture right, you get that bait coming flat at them before they ever hear a splash or know it's there and they swim right into it. I mean, it's, it, those opportunities are generally the highest bite percentage. And, and that's one of the, the coolest things I've learned in terms of just taking the opportunities that we get in a day's time and making more out of them. But man, there's so many things we learn from using forward facing sonar that are so unique, but that's, that's a big one is like just maximizing our opportunities by changing their line of sight. Hmm. Do you think that's why uh, like fishing uphill can be a real thing uh, in shallow water with <laughs> you know, like, uh, bigger, like with glide baits and things like that. Cause you've got the fish and sure their boat may be there, but also the bank is right there too. Mm -hmm. You mean using the topography against them? Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, even. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that can be a big thing. It's like trying like brush fishing, brush fishing. If I can, uh, I try and throw a bait over the pile and, and a lot of people want to get you know on the same side of the pile as the fish are to where they don't have to deal with landing them through the pile but if i'm confident that i can that i can get these fish to commit before i have to put a bait actually in the pile if i can if i can get them to commit like let's say we're talking about like jerk bait fishing i throw my jerk bait over a pile uh i want to really try and get them to commit on the opposite side of the pile for me to where I can use whatever is available around them to break that line of sight. And, you know, it's just like, you know, I mean, lots of people that are deer hunters, you know, especially spot and stock guys. Like when you see, um, you know, an animal, an elk, whatever it is that they're trying to close the distance on, they're going to use the topography of the land or the cover around them to be able to make, close the distance as much as possible without that animal ever having to see them and it's the same thing with approaching bass with a boat is like using the cover around you to break that line of sight you know and although sometimes that leads you to having to land them in tricky scenarios ultimately if you get such a higher bite percentage it really doesn't matter because if you're getting a 40 percent increase bite percentage but you lose two a day you know let's say you have 20 opportunities in a day but you get 40 percent more of them to bite i mean we're talking about, you know, you're adding what, what eight opportunities and, um, yeah, yeah. You're adding eight opportunities. You lose two of them, but you're landing six extra fish because of the way that you chose to approach it. And, uh, that's, that's a, a really unique key to catching more of those fish is just using what's around you to break that line of sight. Hmm. That's cool. Do you ever think you talk too much about how to catch fish and tell people too much stuff? Uh, I mean, probably, yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. But uh, ultimately, you know, in in this sport, I think our our duty to the the fishing community is just as much to catch fish and be entertaining on live as it is to uh, help keep people catch more fish. You know, the the ultimately the fan is the the lifeblood of our sport, and if we can do our part to engage uh, our fans and and the follower base to 
want to indulge in more live content or want to follow along with us on social media or things like that, ultimately the sport will die off. And if we can't engage the fans and the following and, and everyone that, that loves the sport in what we do on the professional side, you know, there's, there's lots of other options for them to go watch fishing anymore. It didn't used to be the case. Now it is. Professional fishing is not the only way to indulge in, in watching bass fishing. And if we are, you know, <clears throat> entirely walled off from everybody and we're trying to keep our deep industry secrets all the time, then what we're doing is we're driving away the follower base to a sort of fishing community that, that is much more open with the way that they do what they do and, and is willing to teach. And if we're not willing as anglers to teach what we do and, and, and you know, really be honest with, with the fans, ultimately they're wanting to be entertained or, or educated. And a lot of times, you know, those alternate routes for watching bass fishing are both entertaining and educational. And so if we're not doing both, we're failing at half our job. And so that's, that's something that I, you know, really am convicted about for sure in terms of the way that we utilize this platform is, is a lot of guys – I don't think understand how or it aren't willing to do what's necessary to support the fan base in a way that I think a lot of guys, you know, always have because now, you know, the, the sport didn't always have competition for, uh, for right. the fan base in terms of, of mediums for watching fishing. And now there is it, which means that everybody's got to, you know, upgrade their product and increase the, uh, increase the quality of what they do and, and being educational is one of the best ways we can do that. Okay. So obviously you've got the most honest top <clears throat> 10 bait, uh, photos in the industry. Um, what, uh, how would you make fishing like more engaging to watch? Because <clears throat> one thing that a lot of people complain about, and I'm not entirely sure that it's a majority of people or it's actually true or people will stop watching, but People don't seem to love watching live scope. Uh, yeah. But it's a big part of how you fish, and I don't know that you don't want to get rid of it. So oh, yeah. how do we make that better for people? What are your thoughts? In terms of forward-facing sonar, really it's it's a it's a learning tool, both for us and for the for the fans. And the I mean, obviously we were working on it. It's something that is looking to be developed into, you know, a, a further a further space, but like being able to allow the fan to watch what we're doing at all times all day is a really important part of it because ultimately LiveScope is a learning tool. It allows us to understand what we're dealing with in, in the environments that we're fishing. And, uh, and the, the first step in my opinion is, is allowing the fans at all times to see exactly what we're doing and how we're working with the fish that we're fishing for. Because even if you don't have forward facing sonar, watching fish interact with certain techniques on certain fisheries at certain times of year is an educational resource. Um, regardless of whether you have forward-facing sonar yourself, you're still learning those concepts of, oh, when he gets on it, he moves the bait a little bit faster, 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 and works that fish up, and then it commits. Or, you know, every time he snaps his jerk bait too hard, it, it spooks. Um, you know, and we, we look at those things, and it's such a valuable informational resource. And so from that, that aspect, you know, the, from the educational side, I think that's the biggest thing we can do. But uh, from the entertainment side, you know, really – I think a lot of times people's biggest frustration is not with forward-facing sonar. I, I'm not talking about everybody, but for the vast majority of the population, I don't think it is. I think their biggest frustration is with spinning rods. And <laughs> ultimately, you know, the, yes, is stepping back and going on a spinning rod, stepping back and just reeling down and whacking one on a, on a three-quarter ounce football jig or something like that. No, no, it's not. But ultimately – we would see if we if we got rid of forward facing sonar and we went back to the bank for every event all year, we, we would see how bad our fisheries really are. How embarrassing would it be for the professional circuits weights to be worse than the locals weights? Because that's what would happen if we got rid of forward facing sonar. It's an informational resource. And as soon as we get rid of an informational resource that allows us to educate ourselves <clears throat> in an effective and rapid way, even on places we've only been to one, two, three, or maybe times or maybe not at all is the weights would be worse than local weights with forward facing sonar because it is such a powerful informational resource. And, uh, and I think people got to understand that our fisheries aren't what they used to be. Guys think that, that most professionals have some otherworldly talent to exploit the bank fish that don't exist anymore. And like, these are the same people, the same people that want us to go back to the bank and go back to flipping a lay down are the same individuals that are going out and getting beat on the bank because the bank sucks. The bank sucks. 
they're not upset about <clears throat> the bank being good, but oh, it's, it, why aren't we fishing the bank? Because it's so good. What they're upset is that forward-facing sonar has taken the bar of excellence and the bar of what is good and what is great away from the bank because the bank sucks. It's always sucked, but it sucks now more than it ever has. And <laughs> it's, it's always sucked. <laughs> it's, it's always sucked. And now it has taken the bar of excellence away from the maximum potential that the bank has. And, you know, you see it. There's, there's a few guys that still exploit the bank to a high level of potential. But when is the last time a bank meter is one angler of the year in, in a, in a turn, major tournament trail? I mean, it, it just doesn't happen because of the fact that the bank sucks. And so really, what do you want? Do you want to watch fish not get caught and watch poor weights? Or do you just want to watch a highlight reel at the end of the tournament of the little snapshots of fun while the whole week was misery for everybody because the bank sucks? Like, and, and I think it boils down to guys want to see fish caught in the traditional and conventional power fishing methods that we used to do that used to work before fish were educated. But it comes from a lack of understanding of fish behavior, which is that guys don't understand the uh, education of fish populations like people that use forward-facing sonar all the time understand, which is that fish populations are very easily educated. And, <clears throat> and once you do that, it can't be undone. Educating fish cannot be undone without legit just taking all the pressure off a of fishery for a long span of time. You know, once, once you fish for these fish, uh, winter. once, twice, yes, winter, which is why up north is Love so it. good. Because <laughs> you physically can't go out four months out of the year, bare minimum. And... You know, that is the only way to truly alleviate pressure on a fishery. But like down south, they, they're like, oh, you know, they, we went to Toledo Bend. And they're like, oh, Toledo Bend, the big bass capital of whatever. And they're out there using spinning rods. Man, we're abusing such an amazing fishery. Toledo Bend and Rayburn too. They get beat on every day, all year long. Those techniques they get, yeah, they get hammered. That, that people like to see. They, they think that somebody out there in the field is just doing them successfully and we just don't know about it. No. Most of those techniques do not work on a consistent basis anymore. You look at the top 10 baits from most events, they're not the traditional power fishing techniques that you saw five or 10 years ago. And it's not because guys have changed the way they fish. Guys have changed the way they fish because those techniques don't work the way they used to. That has driven people to change. If I could still catch 22 pounds every time I went out, throwing a jackhammer in grass on 17 pound line, just cracking on them. Like we saw at Gunnersville last week. If you could just do that everywhere, every tournament, because the population of fish is so good and so dumb that, that you could do that. Trust me. I'd be out there throwing a chatterbait or I'd be out there throwing a line through a swim bait every tournament and just catching mega giant huge bags. But guess what? There's a reason you don't see that happening. And it's not because guys aren't fishing that way anymore because they just won't want to. It's because it doesn't work the way it used to work. And it's driven people to fishing the way we fish now because our fisheries are so pressured. Yeah, I I could see that. I mean, John uh, John Cox, right? You know, our hero. Well, maybe not your hero. You hate the bank. One of my John's heroes. awesome. John, awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, John came closest to winning AOI like pretty well pre scope. It was what twenty eighteen something like that, twenty seventeen maybe. Uh, and I mean. He really had a really, really good shot to do it on the FLW Tour. And, uh, oh, probably would have been 2019 when Dudley won. And granted, like, that was, you know, back when everyone else was fishing the bank, too. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, he really has not – he's had really good seasons. Yeah. But yeah, he's not been really success, close to winning an AOI these last couple of years. And it's, Even with it's, no bank pressure, correct. theoretically. It, in, in theory – taking scope away from the bank should make the bank better. And I, I don't think it's entirely wrong. I think it has made it a little better than it, than it was the last few years, but ultimately the bank still sucks. It's you're always fishing for single fish and you're always fishing for residential fish. When I say residential fish, I'm meaning 90% out of the year you're fishing for fish that are living there for a large span of time um, versus with offshore fish, even though you have times a year where they are, residential where there's certain places that they set up a lot of times if you watch them you know you go one week there's a there's a smaller congregation of fish you go the next week there's a bigger congregation of fish the next week they're gone the next week they're back again like we're seeing these areas <clears throat> fill up 
and hold a population of fish throughout different times of the year, but it may not be the same exact fish every time. You, you go to a, a pocket, your favorite pocket, and chances are there's going to be a few different targets that consistently, you know, just for whatever reason, they hold one good fish. But guess what? Once you catch that one good fish, I dare you to come back for the next week and fish that same lay down every day and catch one more good fish off of that piece of cover. Because you're probably not going to do it. Outside of the springtime, you're not going to do it. Because those are purely residential fish. They live their lives that way. And as soon as they get caught, they're caught. And the offshore fish don't work the same way. And so it's just made it, you know, now that we're able to, through our modern charts, uh, find these fish effectively and through forward-facing sonar, target them effectively, we've realized how poor the bank fish is compared to everything else in our fisheries. And you look at weights, tournament weights over the last few years, they're plumb ridiculous. There is not a tournament all year, every year, where they do not catch them. Outside of the rare Sabine River instances or Winyah Bays where they just send them to a gosh-awful fishery. But, um, you know, you look at you look at weights. Weights have not backed off for probably three years. There has not been, like, the, it used to be that there was there were poor tournaments. Like, tournaments where the weights were just, just horrendous. Guys didn't catch them at all. You know, tournaments where 12 or 13 pounds was a good day. In professional bass fishing anymore, on any landscape for the last three years, there has not been a tournament outside of a couple of the rare, really horrible ones, like bad fisheries, not bad times, just bad fisheries, where the weights have been poor. Because if the fish are in the fishery, the guys exploit it, regardless. And so it's just, you know, we've really learned the potential of, you know, understanding these fisheries and, and, and making them making them show out every tournament. And as a result, you know, the bank used to, to used to be at its best when fisheries were, were poor and inconsistent because it, it made weights low enough that the bank could do some pretty remarkable things. But now that we understand our fisheries and we understand bass behavior, the bank can't compete. Hmm. Um, back on the spinning rod thing a little bit. Have mm-hmm. you ever messed around with the BFS stuff? Because that I, I haven't. Um, but it seems like there's like maybe some tournament applications for it. Maybe not. Uh, Rob says it's fun, but Rob also hasn't fished a tournament in a while. What, do you have any thoughts, comments, concerns? Most of the BFS stuff is like, yes, obviously, are there going to be times where somebody does something crazy and off the wall and, you know, catches them off stumps with a crappie jig and has a really good tournament or something like that? Absolutely. That will happen at times. But as a general rule, um, what makes a presentation stealthy or unique isn't necessarily size. It's just how often they've seen that technique and, and at a very base level, how intrusive that technique or unrealistic it is and uh you know the bfs stuff is an angle that a lot of people are starting to explore but ultimately i think it doesn't it won't take the way that a lot of things will because bass have rules that is the thing is that bass have rules largemouth specifically have rules like like they're there's only so far they're willing to go before they won't need a bait anymore even if it's as even if it's something they've never seen before and, and a lot of times it's about keeping their focus or their attention. And a lot of that stuff just does not keep the attention of a bass in a way that, uh, in the way that a lot of you are more conventional. And when I say conventional, I'm talking about the, the profile of presentations or the size of the presentations that we throw. There's a reason we throw the general, you know, most of your baits are going to range in that three to five three to inch six. range. Yeah. Yeah. It is where most of your standard techniques fall because that is the standard size of most of the forage of most bass in most fisheries. So like, yes, obviously BFS stuff will play at times. You'll see unique things happen, but bass eat what they eat. And the most like the, I think the most dramatic example of something in a truly BFS category coming out and doing something impressive was when the Ned Rig came out. The Ned Rig, when it came out, there was a period of time where it you could go to every fishery, pretty much every fishery in America, and throw a Ned Rig and just, like, demolish them. Anywhere there is a bass, just annihilate them. But it, came, it became uh, pretty obvious pretty fast that when you do something that's so unnatural and so unlike what their forage is to begin with... Um, and you go to that size that is really not that visually appealing to a bass, 
as soon as they're conditioned to it or educated to it, they're done. They're over it. And those little tweaks and tricks work, you know, in very select situations or work for a very short amount of time. But ultimately, they don't have the staying power because they don't emulate what bass are truly eating in their fisheries, you know, in the fisheries they live in, which is why some, you know, very aggressive techniques don't work, even though they can be really good at times, they don't work on the whole once they start getting pressured because they're so unlike everything they eat. I mean, look at what the Whopper Plopper did when it first came out. When the Whopper Plopper first came out, guys took it, threw it all over the country and just straight up murdered them. Everywhere they went, they just throw Whopper Plopper down the bank, giant fish. But now the guys throw it every fall on every fishery that they eat it. They are so conditioned to it now that they don't they don't eat it in the same way they once did. Because what on earth does a whopper plopper imitate? It does not act, look, or have a profile that is similar to anything that a bass eats in the water. And so once they get conditioned conditioned to it, they stop eating it. And ultimately, the only baits that are that are truly pressure resistant in terms of fish being still willing to eat them, even after getting pressured with them, are baits that fall into that normal forage category. And BFS stuff doesn't. Hmm. All right, that makes sense. You don't think, uh, you don't think though that like it's something that you can just do the same thing with a spinning rod, or there would be a good reason for you to try using a, a bait caster for a light spinning technique that like you normally would use a spinning rod for. I think the biggest advantage of a spinning rod is is <clears throat> is the handling and the drag, and. You cannot, the advantage with very light techniques with a spinning rod is that you can flip that bale up and throw it. And it does not matter how much inertia you put into throwing it. When that bait comes to a stop, that spool is, the spool is fixed. It's not a spinning spool. The line flows off the spool. So mm -hmm. the spool, as soon as that bait stops going, it stops pulling the line off and the bait, the, the line stops entirely. Versus with a baitcast reel, no matter how much it's specialized for what you're doing, you're never going to be able to input enough inertia to throw it as far as you can throw a lot of your, you know, primary spinning tackle because of the fact that baitcast reels just operate on a totally different, you know, level of physics from a spinning reel. And a spinning reel allows you with no repercussions to put as much inertia into something as possible. And, and ultimately inertia is what builds casting distance. And... And the second part is drag. I mean, the, you know, they're they're upgrading the cast reel drag day by day, but ultimately due to the way that it's built compared to a spinning reel, a, a bait cast reel is much more constrictive in nature. Like the spool is under much more of a bind. Um, versus with a spinning reel, you know, it's a very simple mechanism. And when you set the drag the way you want it, it's able to, to freely spin at a very consistent and repeatable measure. Baitcast reel drag never has, and, and at the moment I don't feel like any of them quite match the smoothness of the spinning reel drag in the same nature where, you know, whenever you need line to pull, it doesn't require an insane amount of, of pressure to, to release and then go. Like a spinning yeah, like reel doesn't, doesn't have a startup. Correct. A spinning reel doesn't have to have an insane amount of startup pressure to get it to, to release and then go. Baitcast reels almost always have some level of, of, you know, <clears throat> pressure, excess pressure required to break that over and then go. And, you know, as far as that goes, if that is what you're used to, or that's what you like to use, by all means, go for it. But in my opinion, once you're familiar with one or the other, I feel like spinning rods are the way to go for uh, much, you know, more of your finesse, your presentations. Hmm. Um, all right, let's get out of the weeds here a little bit. Um, and I, I want to dip back to Rayburn real quick uh, and then just talk about sort of the big picture of you. Uh, but for Rayburn, one of the things that seemed like a really key adjustment was that you started with a Demiki and then you ended up winning the tournament on a Nico. And you might have started out deeper and then ended up winning the tournament like actually in creeks and things like that and in mm. pockets. Um, talk about the sort of the transition from 
what you started doing to how you actually won, how you made those, how you noticed those things, how you made those decisions, because it's like a perfect way to win a tournament. Like that's what's supposed to happen, right? You, you're not supposed to win off one spot. You're supposed to like adjust your way to the victory and like make savvy moves. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. So Rayburn was, it was an interesting scenario because I had a pretty poor practice, which kind of freed me up to make the decisions I made in the tournament because I, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel locked into an area or locked into a certain technique. I just kind of had an inkling of what parts of the lake I felt like had a good population of fish around, even though I never caught a big one in practice. Population is a great indicator of, of a big fish population. When you're around an excessive population of bass, somewhere adjacent is going to be a big fish population because to get that excessive population, you have to have a large breeding population. And on fisheries like that, most of your larger breeding population is going to be big fish. And so you know somewhere in that vicinity, there's going to be a population of big ones. So I just picked an area of the lake that I felt like had a great population of fish. And just, you know, I had two areas of the lake that I felt like had a truly tremendous, you know, overwhelming population of bass. But one of them had significantly more pressure and one didn't. So I went with the one with less pressure because I felt like if I was only going to have three or four big fish interactions a day, I wanted them to be as, as fresh and as, as raw of interactions as I could as I could get. So I, that's why I went and did what I did is because I, I fished, you know, an area that was a little bit less pressured and uh, started out the tournament fishing a very similar way to what I fish in practice. I started to meet your egg um, at, at single fish floating around, just hoping that I could pick through a bunch of, you know, two and change pounders and catch a handful of three pounders and then run, hopefully run into a big one here or there. And the first day I, I went out, did that process, caught a, you know, a handful of two somethings, caught two around three. And then I, I rolled into a, a shallow area with some grass and sand and saw a big one pitch out there, swim one to Mickey over his head. And he doesn't come, he comes up and looks at it, but doesn't need it. I flip the bail open, falls to the bottom, falls at the bottom, eats it six and a half pounder. Repeats process with a five uh, ten on a brush pile in a very similar looking area. And I'm like, you know, those are two fish set up on two totally different, pieces of cover so this isn't we're not looking at a, at a type of cover pattern or a, what we'll call a uh what we'll call like a a static pattern which is like a pattern that you know when when they get on types of cover patterns that, that's when they're on a static deal when we know what you know they're stuck in whatever period of the year that they're in then they get on static patterns like types of cover but when they're on a transitory pattern, when they're moving toward, you know, the pre-spawn or the spawn or things like that, and they're just using areas, that's when we get in area deals and we don't get on a static pattern of just fishing certain types of fever. And so I was like, you know, it, these were both in very similar areas, but on two totally different pieces of cover, which means we've got some sort of transition moving where fish are moving into these areas, but they're using whatever's available to relate to. And so I started running around. And then, you know, fished the rest of the day, caught one more three pounder. And I was like, you know, this, they're falling up. They're, they're not eating up, they're eating down. So I switched to Nico rig. It's generally the best presentation for that, that sort of scenario and ended up catching every single fish over three that I wanted to catch over the last two days of the tournament and uh, caught them off of a, a variety of different setup, you know, little spots and pieces of cover, but ultimately all in very similar areas, which were, you know, basin drains of sand with grass on the sides and, and if I found that in a short pocket off the main lake, or it was a really controlled environment, uh, I was able to repeat a couple big bites um, in each one of those kind of areas throughout the whole section of the lake I was fishing throughout, you know, day one through three. And uh, and it, it ended up being all I needed to uh, to come out with the win that week. But, man, it, it was really textbook because, like, yeah, like you said, you know, it's really pretty when somebody gets to go and, and win an event fishing new water every day and, and making adjustments and like just exploring around essentially. But like, really, I was just, I was looking for one specific thing, which was, you know, having a flat basin pocket with sand. And if I had grass on the sides, that was, and if there was good spawning habitat in the back, I knew that was somewhere they were going to. And I would just fish whatever cover was available or around whatever cover was available on the way into those places. And so, you know, it, it was something where, it was specific, but not specific. You know, it was fishing places that I didn't know necessarily have a population of big ones, but places that set up very textbook to have that population coming to it. And uh, it was just 
you know, it became fairly predictable once, once I looked at it through those lenses for sure. That's uh that's awesome. Um, this last fall, last off season, you weren't on the Bass Pro Tour, right? You had done everything you could and not made it. You end up getting to fish the Bass Pro Tour. Yep. You did really well in the first one. You're about to bust 50 pounds tomorrow. Do really well in this one. We're going to think positive. Um, what has, what is this like last, you know, six months been like? You've, you fished a college national championship in the time frame. You know, you're like, you're super young in your career. And yet, man, it's all happening. Man, it's a, it's a, it's an unbelievable blessing. Um, you know, I, I finished first spot out in the points and invitationals last year and, and, you know, was, was mentally geared up getting ready to, to go at it again in, in the invitationals hardcore. And I mean, I say that I'm fishing all the invitational this year anyways, but, uh, was, you know, gearing favorite. To, <laughs> was gearing up to, uh, go out and, and, and look another invitational season dead in the face. And, uh, after the Toyota championship at table rock, um, sometime after that, you know, we went through there, you know, obviously went through some changes and, and, uh, I was, I was fortunate enough to, uh, when they had a vacancy and needed to fill it, that, uh, I was one of the individuals that, that got the call to, uh, to, you know, go and, and commit to the Fish and the Bass Pro Tour. And, and that was an opportunity that, yeah, you know, that's something for me that uh, I I got fished the Invitationals last year. I had a solid I had a solid Toyota year the year before, but I didn't finish in the top five in the points in, in my division. And due to the vacancy, got the opportunity to fish the Invitationals and went up to the Invitationals going, you know, I, I didn't technically qualify for this through the traditional means, but I'm here. And I'm going to prove I belong by fishing against this field and beating it and was able to have, you know, I had a two, one mediocre event and a pretty poor event to start the season. The last four events of the season hit a hot streak and just, and blistered them. And like, was able to solidify the fact that even though, you know, regardless of whether I made the BPT cut or not, solidified the fact that even though technically I didn't qualify for it through the conventional means, that my talent was at a level that deserved to be in that field at that time. And and the same thing happened with the BPT this year, you know, through a vacancy, I got an invite to, to come fish. And it's the same approach here this year is like, you know, even though I didn't get through in the conventional means, um, just like, you know, Marshall did winning rookie of the year and beating me out for that. He qualified through the conventional means and, and got in. I, I got the opportunity through a vacancy. And so really my, his opportunity to prove that he belonged was through killing it in the invitationals and winning rookie of the year last year and coming in through the conventional way. My opportunity to prove that I belong in this field is purely by going out, looking the season and the schedule in the face and saying, the only way that I have to prove that I deserve the opportunity to be here is to beat the field. And so that is, that is my goal all year this year is to have a, a very solid, you know, my, my bar is 10th. I want to finish 10th in AOI or better this year. This year. I, <laughs> I may or may not reach that bar, but that's the bar I set for myself. And, uh, and that's my goal. And I feel like if I can do that, I will have proved that even though I got in through some sort of vacancy, that, that my skill level is one that, and uh, my approach is something that belongs fishing against this field. And if you get in, you know, in the way that I did, it's not that it's necessarily a gimme unless you squander that opportunity. If you take that opportunity and you go out and you fish well and you prove that you belong, I don't care if you got that opportunity through winning, winning a uh, a lottery because you pulled a phone number tag off a, off a billboard in the window of a, of a tackle shop. And they called you up and they were like, Hey, we want you to fish the Bass Pro Tour. Uh, if you go out there and, and, you <laughs> be wild. The, and you beat the field, you deserve to be there. And so that's, that is the number one goal this year is, is to go out, fish really strong all year. Not, not just have a good enough year, but to go out and truly excel. And ultimately, if you can't prove that you belong in the field through the way that you got there, you have to prove that you belong in the field by the way you fish when you're there. And uh, that's, that is goal number one for the year for sure. Well, a, a lot of people on a lot of professional tours uh, lately never qualified to be there. Uh, and they, many of them are very qualified to be there, like you said, cause they keep catching them, but you know, we're kind of coming out of an invite heavy phase uh, of tournament fishing. Um, so I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, and I think that, you know, it certainly looks like you're going to prove that you belong. Um, 
do you feel like uh, what do you feel like the business side of it is going as well as you thought it would better than you thought it would like do you feel like you're uh, do you feel like you're taken as seriously as you should be or do you not think about that too much I mean you know I've been really grateful for uh, the opportunities that I've gotten uh, over the last year to work with some of the the companies and and uh, and people that I get to work with in this industry, you know, I, I'm, I am tickled pink to uh, have the support on the marketing side that I do. Um, you know, cause I, I really feel strongly about the, the products that I use and the companies that I work with, because, you know, they, these people have one looked at me and said, you know, this is a guy that we want to bet on. And two are people that are, are standing behind it saying, you know, th- not just, is this a guy we want to bet on, but this is a guy that we like to have representing what we do. And as a representative in that sense, it's something that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very honored. And it's, it's something that, you know, obviously we do it on a marketing sense and on, on the, the business part of the industry to make sure that we can make ends meet. But ultimately when those companies step up to help you achieve those goals, you have a responsibility to them to, uh, to help them get where they're trying to go in this industry, the same way that they're trying to help you get with where you're trying to go. So as far as the business side goes, I am, I am ecstatic about the way it's going right now. You know, I, I've, I get the opportunity to work with everyone at GSM, at Hook, at, at Epic Batteries, at with Triton and, and uh, everyone at White River and Bass Pro. And like, I have a very strong base of uh, companies that's supporting me. And uh, it's something that I, I couldn't be more grateful for, for sure. So there are no complaints from me on that side of things. All right. My last question, um, I would say, uh, just based on the timeline, you have come out of nowhere. Um, but that's like a very normal thing now, right? Like a lot of the best anglers that are winning the most tournaments, uh, were maybe in high school, like three years ago Uh, or our current, I don't know if our currently counts, but they could have been in high school a year ago. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mitchell is uh, looking pretty dangerous already. Yeah, he is. He is um, very solid. Who are who are the who are some names that either in college or high school or somewhere else that are going to be at or near Drew Gill level two three years from now? Oh man, like, I mean, I, I would love. Who to be should I be watching for? Who do I need to write down and learn about? I would love to be responsible for. Uh for saying a lot of these names but like ultimately there are so many out there that i don't know about that are are unbelievable talents that like you look at my track record my freshman and sophomore year of college it was very solid i i had a good average percentage finish like i was in the you know around 20th percentile average meaning most tournaments i was beating 80 percent of the field but that's not enough to gain a name and so, like, there were, you know, I was fishing against the Griffin Fernandez's and, and I was fishing against, you know, my buddy Cole and, and Logan Parks and Rob G and a lot of those guys that were like the, the big dogs when I got into college fishing. And although I was very consistent and, and was good at, at, you know, catching enough weight to stay in the top 50 in most events uh, out of 250 boats, you know, I, I hadn't built a name. So I really don't want to do any injustices by omitting any names, but like you already named one is, is Mitchell. I mean, Mitchell is, is an unbelievable talent. He's one that's scary. Like there's a lot of these high school anglers that are coming up now and, and college anglers are going to be unbelievably good, better than guys we have now and, and better than I probably will ever be because of the start that they're getting right now. And <clears throat> I mean, there's, there's so many, you know, obviously with college fishing, you know, this is a name that I've said many times, but in my opinion, he's, he's a lock to make the elite series this year is East and Fothergill. Like a lot of people don't because you look at the college field and the average weights that are put out by the college field, they're competitive with, with the tournament weights of any other trail on these fisheries at the same times. Always, always are the competition level of the field is unbelievably insane. And when you've got guys that are consistently beating the field as much as he has in college, you really recognize very fast who is destined to come out and just annihilate the field. And he's the the biggest example in college fishing, but obviously there's, there's dozens and dozens of other examples that like, you know, it, unless there's lesser known guys, like uh, one of my 
you know, it unless there's lesser known guys like uh, one of my buddies and is in either sixth or seventh at Toyota Rayburn right now. I mean, a lot of guys that people either haven't been exposed to yet or, or are destined to that are so unbelievably good. And uh, regardless of what tournament they, they enter in or, or are involved in, they step up and see immediate success. So, like, I mean, if we really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of it, I could sit down here and look at results and things and, and analyze this to the nth degree. But, I mean, we're talking about a flood of anglers. We were talking about an, an absolute flood of anglers that within the next five years will hit the scene and will drive, you know, the very first article with Major League Fishing that I was a part of was one that you wrote about the Toyota Championship and the average age of the anglers in the field at, at, at the Lake Gunnersville Toyota Championship. And the average age of the anglers in that field was, was a, a little tidbit that is going to set the tone for the next five years of tournament fishing because it will continue to be driven down every year and every year. And I, I'm, I'm no, because you're going to keep getting older and stay yeah, in the top. I'll get 10. older and they'll get better, and uh, <laughs> and so that's that's just something that it's a trend we're going to continue to see. It's not going anywhere. It's only going to increasingly get more dramatic. Heck, we might even ten years down the road, we're going to have kids out here that their parents are dropping them in in the morning because they don't even have a driver's license, but they're good enough to beat all of us. And. <laughs> Oh God, I I'll oh, feel my so. Yeah, they're gonna be fourteen, fifteen year olds out here beating all of us. Kids that are, you know, they're they're still growing. They're like they show up over, over the off season. They're five inches taller, and they're out there beating all of us. Like it's it's something that's gonna continue to happen, and it will continue to get younger and younger and younger because bass fishing is one of the few sports where physical stature is not a primary role in. In you know, I mean, you see ba- professional bass fishermen in all shapes and sizes. Physical stature doesn't play a role in the ability to do this well. The ability to do this well comes from on the water and what's between here. And kids now are getting so much more time on the water than than middle school and high schoolers ever have before. And between that and the ability to use technology, that age is going to keep getting driven down. And uh, it's it's a trend that that is definitely going to be the most overarching trend in bass fishing over the next five, 10 years is just the amount of skill and potential that anglers under the age of 25 are going to be, are going to be pumping out for sure. I like it. Well, uh, Drew, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate the time. Uh, congratulations on your recent success. Uh, congratulations on your impending success as Santee. Uh, before I let you go, where can people follow you? Get them some more Drew Gill. Oh man. So you can find me anywhere that you want to find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube under Drew Gill fishing. Um, you know that, and you know, YouTube, something I'm looking to build. So if you guys want to go over there and check that out, you know, it may not be super, uh, intimidating right now in terms of the amount of resources that I put out there, but it's something that is definitely going to be in the works over the next year or two. And, uh, and, uh, you know, just, just follow along. I got, you know, I, I won't say that, uh, it's always the, trendiest or, or most creative things that have ever been put out and on an internet marketing. But, but I, I do know that, uh, you know, I love engaging with all of you guys on all those platforms. And, uh, if anyone ever wants to just talk fishing, you know, I'm always open. So just hit me up on any of those platforms and I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, answer questions or, or just talk about bass fishing. So. All right. Well, I did just subscribe now, but you do need to put some more videos up. Yeah, on youtube because it's hard when you is, when you fish every day all day for like three months straight I, i'm not i'm not signed up for all those tournaments you you are mm-hmm. uh all right bud well dude thanks for coming on i appreciate it and uh we'll see you next week uh down thanks, at west point no doubt <laughs>